Today, we're going to talk about the three best things you can do over the long Thanksgiving weekend and the six weeks left in 2021 that have nothing to do with family and eating and football and whatever else you love to do this time of year. From now to the end of the year will be a whirlwind. I love this time of year, and I wouldn't ever suggest you do anything that takes you away from your traditions unless it was ridiculously important. And if all you want to do is sit around in sweats and bask in string bean casserole and gain 15 pounds and gear up for whole 30 in January, just do that. But know you're going to have those cracks of time when, even if you haven't seen your family in a while, they're going to start to drive you a bit crazy. Those times when maybe you pretend you've got a call for work just so that you can sit in your room alone on your phone for an hour. And maybe you want to make sure you close this year strong and get ready for the next. I thought a lot about the absolute highest value things that you can do in the cracks of time you've got in these next six weeks, and I came up with three great ones. And to talk through them, we'll need to go through the fireplace delusion, rainfall in Bermuda, and telling sexual partners you've got chlamydia. All in a day's work here at the Idea to Start Up Pod, which will start after some smooth jazz. I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start Up Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through our product, the Tacklebox Method, and we play smooth jazz and run through startup tactics every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, you're ready to launch something, or maybe you already launched it and you're flying ahead full steam. We're here to give you the tactical strategy that will give your business the best chance of success. For podcast resources and notes, go to gettacklebox.com forward slash no whisper ideas. And with that, let's get to it. The fireplace delusion is one I almost don't want to tell you about. The first time I heard about it was from Sam Harris, who uses it as a tool to show how irrational people can be. The premise is simple. When you light a fire in your fireplace, it feels wholesome. It's warming. It's natural, but it's also really bad for you. Burning smoke from wood is actually pretty much the same as smoking. It's at least as bad for you as a cigarette and probably worse. Some studies say it's actually more than 30 times worse. The particles are really small and they get in your lungs. This is a bit of a downer, but don't worry. I've got good news too. Since you likely don't do it all the time, and you've hopefully got a chimney with a working flue that was built after 1991 when a bunch of regulations around fireplaces went into effect, you aren't at a ton of risk. But that's not why I'm bringing up the story. The reason I bring it up is the reaction people have to hearing that fireplaces are bad for your lungs. When told that building a fire in their living room during the holidays was worse than having a relative sitting on the couch next to them smoking, people didn't believe it, and they got angry. They defensively said things like, my grandparents built fires every day and lived to be 90, and that a fire is a symbol of the holidays, and that our ancestors have been building fires since the Stone Age, and on and on and on. If something doesn't align with our worldview, we're great at thinking up a bunch of reasons why it can't be true. Humans are unbelievable at not seeing something directly in front of their face. Some of the time, like with the fire delusion, it isn't really that big of a deal. In other cases, it is. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by Mark Twain, and it goes, It ain't what you don't know about that gets you into trouble in life. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. So the first thing I think is worth doing over the holidays is taking a look in the mirror to see what's right in front of your face holding you back that you're ignoring. And don't beat yourself up about it. That's not the point. The point is to get better. I found it's helpful to take a scientific approach. Pretend you're the subject of a Truman Show-like documentary where scientists watch you every day. What would they say is holding you back? 
What would they think the big blocker keeping you from your goals was? You've definitely got a bunch, but what's the most important? Do you not go after what you want? Do you give people too much of your time for free? Do you not take yourself seriously? Do you not believe in your ability? Do you not let other people help? Think about the past year. What did you want to accomplish that didn't happen? Why didn't it happen? Why would someone watching from the outside say it didn't happen? Then go get a slice of pecan pie because that truly wasn't all that fun, but confronting it allows you to build a plan to fix it. Fire being a bit of a health hazard isn't objectively bad. If you accept it, you can make decisions around it. Ignoring it is the real problem. The first step is seeing, find the blocker, and confront it. Step two is dealing with it. And to deal with it, we've got to talk about rain in Bermuda. I went to Bermuda for my honeymoon, and whatever the best thing anyone tells you about Bermuda, it's better than that. What an absolute freaking delight that place is. Anyway, I was talking with someone who lives in Bermuda and worked at the hotel we were staying at about their water system. I was curious about where the water came from. They're obviously in the middle of the ocean, and they don't seem to get a ton of rain. The island's also really densely populated, and I didn't see any lakes. In general, I had a lot of infrastructure questions. You know, the sorts of things you're supposed to be thinking about on your honeymoon. He told me that all the houses in Bermuda have self-contained water supplies because there's no fresh water or springs or lakes on the island. Each house has a cistern that collects the rainwater that falls on the roof. In fact, the law requires that every house legally must collect 80% of the water that falls on its roof, meaning that each square foot of every roof space must be matched with eight gallons of tank space. These regulations ensure that every home is self-sufficient. There are about 55 inches of rainfall a year in Bermuda, and without this system, life in Bermuda would not be possible. But it is. If you've been to Bermuda or seen pictures, you've probably seen the iconic white terraced rooftops so many of the buildings have. These aren't for aesthetics. They're to collect rainwater. The roofs are built of rectangular slabs of local limestone. The white paint reflects the ultraviolet light of the sun, and along with the limestone, purifies the water as it's being collected. The houses have a separate plumbing system where salt water is fed to the toilets, but the drinking water all comes from the rain. My new friend told me how everyone in his house growing up always knew at all times exactly how much water was in their cistern. They had multiple lines drawn on the cistern with goals they wanted to reach before periods of time where it didn't normally rain. When it rained, especially when it rained unexpectedly, his family would all take bets on how high the tank would fill. They used exactly one cup of water to brush their teeth, one cup to wash their face, and showers were utilitarian and short, taking less than five minutes. And they always had enough water. The point of that story is that I thought it was super interesting, but also that if you want to make changes, you have to make things measurable and visible. If the tank was hidden, the system wouldn't work. If there weren't laws about how much water needed to be collected, most houses wouldn't be self-sufficient and Bermuda wouldn't be a thing. So the second thing you need to do over the next six weeks is think about that one thing you found that's holding you back and build a highly visual system around it. Visual, measurable, with consequences is how things get done. Maybe the thing holding you back is your network. You've been a lawyer for the last 12 years and don't know anyone in the startup world, but you want to start a business. How can you design a big visual system with consequences for growing your network? Meeting people in the startup world is too vague, so let's get tighter. Maybe you want to meet a co-founder who's technical. You also want to meet an advisor in the ad tech space where your idea is. 
and you want to speak with people who buy ads for direct consumer companies because that's going to be your first customer. Set a goal of speaking with one person in each bucket each week. That can start with a one-hour calendar invite to yourself on Sunday evenings where you send out cold emails, search for networking events, and reach out to five friends to connect you with people in their network. Then put three post-its on the top of your computer screen that say conversation one, conversation two, and conversation three. When you have each conversation, take off the post-it. Put them back every Sunday. At the end of the week, donate $50 to a charity for every post-it that's still on your computer. A few years back, I wanted to build my network. What I did was put 10 shoeboxes in front of my TV. I have lots of shoeboxes because I have lots of shoes. When I reached out to someone, I moved a shoebox. If I wanted to watch TV, I had to reach out to 10 people first. This stuff is silly, but it works. Designing your environment to make sure you're doing things that will help you remove your big blockers is just about the best use of time that there is. And now, the moment you've been waiting for. The telling your sexual partners about chlamydia thing. And, oddly, this starts with your parents, friends, and family. You're probably working on a startup, that's why you're here. Over the next six weeks, you're going to be around a lot of people who love you and want to help. They will think that feature suggestions or being supportive by saying things like, you're so brave, will help. Those things aggressively do not help. What will help is for them to actually know what you're doing. So when people ask, they don't say, oh, Sarah's working on a startup idea. They say something that'll potentially get you in front of someone who can help. That means you've got to have a soundbite that'll travel. And that takes us to lovesick. Over the past five years, the show I've recommended the most is Lovesick on Netflix. It's about a guy who gets chlamydia, and each episode is him telling an old sexual partner that they need to get tested. Then, the episode goes back to the time when he dated that person and tells that story. You see lots of different girlfriends, but you also see him and his friends grow up together. It's hilarious and heartfelt and British, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's the best show I've seen over the past six years but it is the easiest to remember and the easiest to explain. Which brings us to why people share. People share things that are easy to share. The world is just a big game of telephone and the plot for lovesick is easy to remember, so I share it. Now, think about a travel company. Let's say I'm starting one and when my cousin asks what I'm doing, I say, I'm building a travel company where I'll make people a custom itinerary, I'll help them connect with a local, and I'll give them a free activity based on a personality quiz they take before they travel. I'll then make affiliate revenue from all of the places that I match them up with. My cousin won't really know what I'm talking about and he won't know what to do with that information. It's really hard to remember all those details, especially when there isn't really a known level of priority there. It's gonna go in one ear and out the other. Conversely, if I say I'm working on a travel company for people with kids under three who used to take really adventurous trips before they have kids and still want to do it, they can suddenly say, well, I have a friend with two kids who used to travel a lot. Let me introduce you. Or the next time they meet people with young kids, they can bring me up. Early on, startups are all about people remembering what you do and telling other people about it. That's how you grow. And you'll have a bunch of people that want to help you, so make sure that you have a description of what you're doing that's tight, memorable, and most importantly, specific. Make it easy for someone to know what it is that they're supposed to share. The classic test, which is classic for a reason, is to pitch someone your startup or tell someone about what you're doing. Then, ask them to pitch it back to you in one sentence. If they tell you something generic or they struggle, you have not done a good job with your soundbite. If they can't even tell you immediately after you told them what you were up to, 
then how are they going to share it with anybody else? Figure out a soundbite for the holidays, something you say that'll travel. Your family wants to help. Let them. Do those three things over the next six weeks and you'll be in great shape. First, figure out your one biggest blocker. Second, build a visual, consequence-filled environment for working on that blocker. And third, create a soundbite for all of your loved ones to help you succeed. And eat a ton of green bean casserole, the undisputed champion of Thanksgiving food. Have a great holiday for all of you in the U.S. that celebrate it. And for the international folks, the advice has nothing to do with Thanksgiving and is great for you too. Have a great week. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. The Tacklebox membership gives you access to the structure, strategy, and network you need to build your business. See if your startup idea makes sense for it at gettacklebox.com.